Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I am Frank Price, Vice President of the Northern California Peace Corps Association, a Shriver Circle member of the National Peace Corps Association, and Vice President of Team Building Unlimited. Please go to commonwealthclub.org to discover all of the great programming ahead. Some of the programs are free. However, we would be delighted if you would go to the commonwealthclub.org to donate. Special thanks to those of you who have already donated. We are the nation's oldest and largest public affairs forum. As a nonprofit that generates revenue through events, you can imagine how much we appreciate your donation during these difficult times. To learn, to learn more about upcoming live stream programs, we invite you to check our website for a complete listing. For today's program, we are accepting questions for our panel members through chat on YouTube. There's a chat window on the right side of the video window. To access the chat feature on YouTube, the viewer must log into YouTube, simply enter your mail address and screen name when prompted. Please join me today in welcoming our panel as we discover and learn how these four dynamic returned Peace Corps volunteer women crafted their careers to become important and influential leaders. Let's find out what hurdles and accomplishments they've had. We have Rachma Wright, founder and CEO of Shailene, uh, Health and Beauty, served in Ghana. Lisa Curtis, founder and CEO of Kali Kali, served in Niger. Karen DeWitt, journalist, digital newsroom director, School of Journalism and Communication at Morgan State University, served in Ethiopia. And Nalini Elkin, CEO and founder of Inside the Products, served in Togo. Let's begin the discussion. Thank you, by the way. Um, so let's start with uh, Rachma. Uh, we'll, we'll let you start off with your introduction. Thank you so much, Frank. Hello, everyone. My name is Rahma Wright. I am the founder of Shayaline. I'm super excited to be here. I want to thank the Commonwealth for the invitation, and I want to thank Frank for organizing all of this. And Frank, I have to say, I'm loving the kente cloth in your background. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually want to make a slight correction. I served in Mali, but I currently work with women shea butter producers in Northern Ghana. Uh, and I'm also of Ghanaian heritage. Uh, my parents met when my dad did the Peace Corps in West Africa as well in Burkina Faso. And so I have a huge connection uh, to, to West Africa. And But before I dive in, I wanted to give all the viewers a very short glimpse into the work that my company, Shailene, is doing uh, in Ghana. So with that, with that, we're showing a very short one minute video. Shailene is a company I started after serving in the Peace Corps. I was assigned to work at a community health center. And frequently, women would come into my health center and leave unable to buy medicine. So I started researching income generating activities. This is when I started learning about this product right here. This is the Shea seed. And this seed is found in a fruit. And this fruit grows on a tree exclusively in Sub-Saharan Africa. What we do is we help women take shea seeds and turn it into shea butter products. And these products are not only amazing in terms of being natural, organic, using pure ingredients, but they're also a source of living wages for the women who are the backbone of the shea industry. My name is Rahma Wright, and I invite you to the Shailene family, where we create better butter for better lives. 
So everyone who just saw that, again, welcome to the Shayaline family. Um, I get really excited talking about Shea Butter. I get really excited about talking about economic development, specifically for women uh, in small rural communities of Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think in order to understand why I do the work that I do, it's important to understand where I come from and to understand my, my heritage and my family. So I grew up in upstate New York outside of Syracuse in a very small town that was not very diverse, but in my household and the family I grew up in, we were multiracial, multicultural, and we had a very huge uh, focus on international affairs. And for me, I grew up in a household where my mom, from, who was from Ghana, had a lot of limitations in her life because she was a girl child and she grew up in a conservative family in Northern Ghana. So a lot of the things that I have experienced, uh, she has an experience in terms of not being able to go to school. You know, her family wanted her to marry young. Uh, a, a lot of uh, traditions that she actually rebelled against. And uh, when she immigrated to the U.S., she gave me and my younger siblings a very different lifestyle and a very different choice from a lot of the choices that she had to deal with. And so when you understand that that's my family background, it makes sense that over the last 15 years, I've been working to support economic development for women in very small, small rural villages of Northern Ghana. And the reason why is one, shea butter is amazing. Everyone uses shea butter. Everyone loves shea butter. But as the video showed, shea butter comes from a very special place. It comes from the heart and labor of African women. Uh, you cannot find a shea product anywhere in the world, and a woman in Africa wasn't a part of the supply chain. It's actually impossible. Shea trees only grow in sub-Saharan Africa across 21 countries. There are roughly 16 million women who are part of this amazing supply chain. But the unfortunate reality is that most of these women struggle with extreme levels of poverty. Most of these women do not have the ability to financially care for, the, for themselves and for their families. And so when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, for the very first time, here I was in a small village and seeing firsthand a lot of the disparities facing these women who create this amazing product. And as I started learning about what women do in their communities, how it translates to the global marketplace for Shea, I saw a lot of disconnections and I also saw a lot of things that really bothered me, uh, things around equity, things around wealth and where wealth is created and where wealth is kept. And honestly, the fact that the multi-billion, and I'll say that again, multi-billion dollar industries that financially exploit the labor of African women. And so when I saw those issues firsthand, I was in, in, in my early 20s, no business background, no money no network. Literally, I had no business starting this business, but I did. <laughs> and I did it to center the role of women in Africa and figure out a way to connect the dots, supporting what women are doing in their communities, connecting it to consumers here in the U.S., and in a way that has a very specific goal of increasing women's income five times their country's minimum wage. And so I will stop there and turn the floor back over to Frank, and I look forward to this conversation. With that, I think we'll go to Lisa. Oh, I was really hoping I wouldn't have to follow Rahma. She's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. 
Um, Lisa, I didn't want to have to follow you. So <laughs> <laughs> we, we've done this before. We, uh, um, but I would love to just tell you guys a little bit about another cool African crop, moringa. Um, and I don't have a beautiful video, but I do have a somewhat beautiful slide deck that I would love to just kind of briefly show. Um, and thank you all for, for having us. This is such a fun discussion and such an amazing panel. So as background, I'm the founder and CEO of Cooley Cooley. And similar to Rahma, I uh, first started my company after working in the Peace Corps. Um, so I was a volunteer in Niger, West Africa, as Frank said, and um, kind of came across Moringa out of a personal need. So as all, all the RPCVs on this call know, I was in a very rural village, no electricity, no running water. And as a vegetarian, I found that I was mostly eating a diet of like rice every day and rice, pasta, and millet, and didn't make me feel very good. So I ended up asking some of the women in my health center what I could eat that would make me feel better. And they literally pulled these leaves off a tree and mixed it into this popular West African peanut snack called Cooley Cooley and said, you know, eat this, this will make you feel better. Um, and I sort of looked at them, I was like, really, tree leaves? That's, that's the answer here. Um, but I, I trusted these women and so I did. I, I started eating this Cooley Cooley Moringa snack and it just made me feel amazing. Um, so I, I started to do some research, like, you know, what is this plant uh, that is that is giving me such natural energy, is giving my body these nutrients, um, and learned that moringa is a tree that grows all over the tropics. It's, you know, more nutritious than kale, better anti-inflammatory than turmeric, and it's used all over the world. It's recognized in Ayurvedic medicine, it's, you know, recognized in, in all sorts of countries in Africa, South America, India. It's actually the national vegetable of the Philippines. So really important all over the world, um, but hadn't really debuted on, in the Western world at all, wasn't much on the US market. Um, but as I, you know, when I got into the capital, got some internet, uh, started doing some research, I was like, wow, this plant is so nutritious and has all these amazing scientific benefits, you know, some of which have started to see some clinical trials being done, you know, helping people lower their blood sugar levels, helping new moms with lactation, even antioxidants that a lot of cancer patients were raving about. And I was like, well, why, why aren't more people locally eating it? Um, so I started, you know, looking at all these, this gram for gram nutrition. And here I was sitting in the health center in Niger, where I was treating malnourished babies every day um, and kept thinking about, well, if this tree grows so well here, you know, why aren't more people consuming it? Um, and started speaking more with this women's group. And, and basically they told me that, you know, there wasn't much of a market for Moringa, that it was kind of seen as this like poor person's crop, like food that you had to eat um, if, you know, if you didn't have enough money to afford anything else. Kind of the way kale 10 years ago used to be viewed as this backyard weed. And now we know, you know, kale's on every fine dining menu. So I asked them what I could do uh, to help get more people locally to, to grow and consume Moringa. And, you know, being farmers, they said, what, which should have been an obvious answer is, well, why don't you help us sell it? Because if we sell it, then we'll grow more of it. If we grow more of it, we'll consume more of it. And really what we want is a way to earn a sustainable livelihood. 
so similar to Rama, I was, you know, 22 at the time and was like, sure, no problem. I'll help you introduce this superfood nobody's ever heard of to the U.S. Like, no idea what I was getting into. Um, but I did, and I've been doing that um, for the past decade. So these are the products Cooley Cooley sells. So basically, we work with small farmers, primarily African women, who uh, pluck the leaves of the moringa tree. Uh, doesn't hurt the tree at all. The tree keeps growing, and then they powder them, and then we sell them in the form of powders. We also add it into bars and wellness shots, and we just launched a new superfood chocolate, which if you haven't tried, highly recommend. It's been taken off for us. Um, and the best part about that is, is we've started to really get some scale. So our, our products are in about 11,000 stores across the U.S., so everywhere from Whole Foods to even places like CVS and Walmart. Um, and we are able to directly source all of that Moringa. So this is one of our farmer partners in Uganda. They're solar powered, you can see on the top there. And it's, you know, I tell people it's, it's not just great from an impact standpoint, but it's also great from a quality standpoint. We know exactly how the Moringa is grown. We've been to the farms, we've tested the soil and we get really what is the highest quality Moringa on the market. Um, and for me, as a Peace Corps volunteer, uh, this is the, the goal of this is to really have a, an outsized impact and to really positively impact the communities where we're sourcing from. So since we launched onto the market in 2014, um, we've been able to support over 3,000 women and family farmers earning a sustainable livelihood through Moringa. Um, we've been able to plant over 24 million Moringa trees. Um, so that's really exciting uh, to be able to plant them in lots of places that were sort of degraded land or land that had been used for cattle that's now being reforested. Um, and then also to put over $5 million in income into the hands of small farmers without brokers, without any middlemen, um, directly in the hands of farmers. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of people using business as a force for good. And I, I tell my team all the time that, you know, you don't need an MBA, you need an RPCV, somebody who can, uh, you know, get their hands dirty and roll up their sleeves and make it happen. So again, thanks for having me on this group. We're going to turn our attention now to Nalini. Okay, thanks so much. Oh my God, you guys, you are absolutely amazing, amazing women. Um, I'm just so honored to even be on the same uh, uh, panel as you guys. Um, my, let me, I'm going to show you my presentation and um, uh, my work. And uh, let me see if you guys are seeing this okay. Okay. Um, my experience is uh, very, very different in some ways from, from uh, these two other wonderful ladies. I, in a lot of ways, it's really the same, you know, because. Um, Peace Corps was a transformational experience for me. When I joined the Peace Corps, I was working on the uh, uh, 38th floor of Chevron in San Francisco. And, you know, that was the time when people used to wear suits and heels uh, in the work. It was wonderful. I loved it. And, and um, you know, and, and Chevron was kind enough to give me a two and a half year leave of absence to join the Peace Corps where I was earning um, 11 cents 
um, an hour. It was um, <laughs> it was a very big, big difference. And but it was it was as I said, there was life before Peace Corps and life after. One of the first things that happened is I was living in a very small town at the end of the um, end of the paved road in Togo, West Africa. It's the country next to Ghana, again, sub-Saharan Africa. And what happens is that um, the Peace Corps driver takes you up country. And it was maybe, oh, eight or 10 hours up country. And, and they leave you there with a book called Where There Is No Doctor. And they say, oh, we'll pick you up in two years. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? And, but it turned out to be um, uh, one of the best two years of my life. Uh, I, was a, I was a teacher, and these are some of my kids. Uh, I call them kids. They, they ranged really in age from 10 uh, to 20 years of age. And this was one of, a, a, a small portion of my class. This was um, my part of my seventh grade class where I had 45 kids in, in each room. I had three sixth grade classes where I had 75 kids in each room. And I'll tell you something. When you walk into a room and then there's 75 kids there, um, either you're going to run the room or you're going to run out of the room. And I'll tell you something um, that that it really changed me because, you know, I, I I I ended up loving them. They loved me. And and I learned so much. And it really it was like there's not very much that's going to intimidate me after going through um, experiences like that. This is some of my teachers, and this is my house. Some of the other, this is, I think, when we were uh, going away, they had a little party for me. And um, uh, we had, um, I had running water um, and, and electricity uh, quite a bit of the time. Um, and running water at uh, some of the time. This is the market. This was, you know, I had never experienced that if you wanted to have chicken, you had to go to the market and have the kids uh, kill the chicken. Um, this is um, back in the village where some of the kids took me back to where they lived. And they, some of them, it was very difficult because only like one or two of them would be able to go to school. So it was quite quite um, quite difficult uh, for them to get an education. And so now fast forward <laughs> 30 or 40 years, and now this is what I do, is um, I, I, I don't work like the other two gals in um, uh, directly with um, uh, the folks in country. I work with folks in India, but, but what I do is I create standards for the internet. And this is what it means is I write papers that look like this, which, you know, Frank one time said, you know, uh, I tried reading one of your papers and I, and I could read three words, A, and, and Z. And, and that's, that's pretty much how it is. It's, it's this, you know, you, it, you have to have a special vocabulary. And you know what, you, you, you guys may never have thought about how the internet works, but how it works is that, you know, if you go to a different um, country, you'll see that the electrical outlets are different and the voltage is different. Well, 
if the internet worked like that, well, it wouldn't work, right? And so somehow you have to work together. Everybody all across the world has to get together and decide um, how things are going to work. And those people, they call them network protocol engineers, um, and of which I am one. And as I say, we, we write papers that look like that, that horrible thing that you just saw, and we argue a lot with each other. And one of the things that I've been doing is working with two incredible organizations, the American Registry for Internet Numbers uh, and the Asia Pacific um, uh, Regional Center, APNIC, because the internet is running out of addresses and we're trying to, again, something that, that um, you guys may not have thought of that we think about all the time is, is how to actually make the internet work. And this is, here we are uh, in, uh, in India. And basically this is my life now is um, working with uh, the geekiest of the geeks and the nerdiest of the nerds. And I could not, be happier. Thank you very much, Nalini. Uh, it is true. I only understood the the and then the and. Now, uh, <laughs> we'd love to hear from Karen. Turn it yes. over to you. Oh. I am delighted to be here. I am totally blown away by everyone here, particularly uh, Rahama. Is that right? Did I say your name correctly? Rahama and uh, Lisa, because you all are really doing um, very well in the third goal of the Peace Corps, which is to give back. Uh, I, and you're connecting the United States with these other places. So I am terribly impressed. You're all very young, including you, Nalina. Uh, you guys are always are very baby Peace Corps volunteers. I joined the Peace Corps by accident in 1965. Uh, I was what was called an advanced training program, ATP volunteer uh, because the Peace Corps had discovered that it was very helpful if their volunteers actually spoke the language of the country that they were in. So I was accepted as an ATP. They spent $10,000, which isn't very much money nowadays, but they spent $10,000 in training each one of us. There were 60 of us. I studied Amharic, which was at the time the national language, still is the national language of Ethiopia, at UCLA. I still speak it uh, for a long time after I came back. I got free taxi rides from Ethiopian taxi drivers who were blown away that I spoke the language and were very appreciative. Uh, I lived in a village. I didn't want to live in the capital. I lived in a village which was 200 kilometers from the capital. Uh, it was also where Senator Paul Songus, who was there seven years before I was, served. And I remember when I met him, he asked me if the playground was still there that they had built, which I thought was amusing because many times Americans would start things that the indigenous people had no interest in. I also wanted to say, Rahama, I have been to Ghana. I actually proposed a story for National Geographic on the 35th anniversary of the Peace Corps. So I went back to all of the places that Peace Corps volunteers had been there. Unfortunately, it was the year they raised the Titanic. So Peace Corps didn't get played in National Geographic. I Maybe, maybe I should go back and do another anniversary thing. Uh, I'm, unlike you two ladies, and I'm just all terribly impressed by, I would call you 21st century women, that you are entrepreneurs. And I see it in my students now. With the internet uh, and Nalina, uh, Nalina, am I saying that correctly? Nalina? 
my students now, they are all 21st century students. I'm not always sure that I really like them because they don't read anything. Uh, they get everything on digital media, but many of them are entrepreneurial. So I'm very proud of that. I was not interested in that at the time. I wish I had become interested in it. And who knows? I'm not too old to start something. Uh, but I became a writer. And that's what uh, I learned two things in the Peace Corps. One, that I had an affinity for teaching, that I was a very good teacher. Uh, and I continued to um, be a teacher throughout my life. I worked for newspapers. Uh, I worked for the New York Post when Dolly Schiff, I want to make clear, this was an old, old newspaper, New York Post, uh, when she was there. And then I lived, moved to the Middle East. Um, I married and corresponded, the Washington Post first correspondent in the Middle East, because I spoke Arabic as well as Amharic. I had gone through the Arab world. I fell in love with the Arab world. So when I got back to New York uh, on the weekends, I studied uh, Arabic at the New School. Um, lived there, came back and uh, started working freelancing. I worked for the National Journal, which is a heavy duty um, government magazine. I bought a house, I got a divorce, uh, and then I didn't have a regular job for a couple of years. So I freelanced and I freelanced for everybody and their mother. I mean, I freelanced for organizations, National Geographic, uh, women's magazines, et cetera. Uh, and I freelance for the Washington Post magazine and was very lucky in the editor, Shelby Coffey III, who took the time to look at a freelance piece I did on um, um, Clifford Alexander, who was at that time the secretary of the army. Um, I thought I was writing it, but I wasn't writing it with fictive elements in the writing. I was writing a linear piece, you know, this is here, blah, blah, blah. And he was very kind and took the time to uh, talk to me about putting fictive elements and not first, second, third. And the second time I brought it in, because he was going to give me the kill fee, which is the one third of what you ordinarily get. And we were going through it. And I said, I see the lead is at the beginning. After that, I took off. I worked for the New York Post, New York, New York Times, Washington Post. I was a senior producer. And now I'm teaching the 21st century students how to, one, write, because a lot of them are not good writers, uh, and how to tell stories. And I want to widen their um, vision of life, because they're often very narrow in their interests. I, for example, discovered that uh, I asked the students where they got news, and one of them said, we get it from uh, Shade. Uh, shade is, I was like, what? But it's actually a gossip column that has no, it's not based in fact at all. So one of the things I want to try to do, because I can see it in the nation as a whole, is people do not know how to distinguish real information from fake information. I think it's critical. I mean, that's why we have a problem with COVID, people getting shots and things like that. I always point out when people say, oh, did you get it? I'm like, I have had so many shots because I have lived all over the world. I've had amoebic dysentery, danky fever shots, yellow fever shots. So please get it. And I'll let, I'll, I'm open for any kind of questions, but I am delighted that all of these ladies are here. You are all much younger than I am. You are much more important than I am. And you will last longer in the 21st century than I will. Oh, gosh. Uh, what, a, what a pleasure for me to be here. Um, I'd like to have you 
examine some of the difficulties you faced either in the Peace Corps, in the business world, uh, in the teaching career, writing. Uh, so let me let me go in reverse order and start with Karen. Can you tell us some of the difficulties that you faced um, in in your professional career and in your Peace Corps career? Well, let me start with the Peace Corps because the both uh, uh, two ladies talked about the role of women uh, in uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, I lived in the countryside, and uh, and I have written about this. I cannot remember the name of the book that it's collected in. But I was coming back whenever I, I lived 200 kilometers from the capital. So you took a bus and the bus didn't go straight. The bus stopped and the bus driver and the passengers would encourage people to get on the bus, even if it was going to go a mile down the road. They wanted to keep the bus. The buses were packed and it was Western Christmas one time. And I had gotten a bus in the capital. We got halfway point and what they would often do was empty one bus and pack the people on. So a bus that was supposed to have 40 people on it would have 80 people on. And the first people that suffered from this were the women, women and children. They threw them out of their seats and the men took their places. And because it was the Western Christmas and I was feeling a little, you know, Western, uh, I told the bus driver, this is kill, kill, as I said, not your wonderful product, but kill, kill. This is forbidden. And he laughed and I thought, okay, but this farmer and I are going to be the only two people who are going to sit in this seat because you know this is illegal. And there was no problem until, as uh, they would say in my country, a talixal, a, a big man, big in, in that he was important, got on the bus and he shoved the farmer up against me. So the farmer and I are now sitting in a narrow seat and the guy is sitting next to me. I've written about this. I asked him to get up. I used polite Amharic and he sort of dismissed it because when I'm a woman, uh, and he said, um, you know, basically, she's a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, they don't have any jobs in the United States. Uh, their women are, are sluts, excuse me for the word, but that's essentially what he said. Uh, and um, they don't do anything but eat meat, which is a big thing to eat meat in Ethiopia, where most meals are vegetarian, was a big thing. And my great granny's Irish temper uh, rose up. And I told him in no uncertain term to get up. And I took my umbrella. I don't know what was in me. And I jammed it in his thigh. And he got up. And the bus driver said, oh, come sit on the, you know, uh, this part up front. And then he lectured the whole bus about how Peace Corps volunteers weren't worth anything. We had no jobs at home, blah, 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 blah. And when I got off the bus, I said in very polite, correct, Amharic. You have a big mouth and a little. Everybody get that? You have a big mouth and a little thing down there. So I got off the bus. I thought this was over. And he leapt off the bus and grabbed me and said, I'm taking you to the police station. And it was the hour of um, Posada, you know, where people are walking around in your town. So my students were there. uh, Villagers were there. Everybody was there. And I thought, if I'm going to, I mean, I became a black Mary Poppins. I beat the crap out of this guy with the umbrella. He was beating me. It was totally not what I was supposed to be doing, but I was gone. I was just coming. And I thought, if I'm leaving the Peace Corps, I'm going to leave one dead guy on the street. At this time, our police were coming through here. They'd all been drinking. 
uh, the national teachers came through uh, and everybody and my students are now around. So we have a whole village of people now with me in the sky fighting. And he's saying, he hit me. And I said, yes, and I'll hit him again because he did this. this, this. Police, as I said, who had been drinking Katikala, which is a local beverage. We all strolled to the police station and they asked us what had happened. And I said, yes, I did do this. I it's correct. But I don't know if the countries you were in, there's a sense of uh, when they talk about a country, they're not talking about all of Ethiopia. They're talking about the area that I lived in. So they said to him, you are not from our country, meaning the village and the area. That was she is from our country. She is a teacher. We're going to put you in jail tonight and put you on a bus tomorrow morning. And that was the end of it. My students walked me home. You know, it was a wonderful experience. They were cheering, et cetera. The next day, uh, and this is all in a piece that I wrote, I talked about democracy, how we were all equal, and there was no person that was bigger than anybody else. Uh, but I will say, I don't know whether I did that a, a favor or whether it was because I was a, an American who was like, I'm fed up with this or not. But it was a wonderful experience for me, for context. And as I said, I learned, spoke the language. I learned a lot. People really appreciated it. My students, um, many of whom are now in the United States and run restaurants, I've written their menus, corrected their English. Um, so that was the biggest challenge was how women were treated. And I remember one of my students was 14 and had just had her menses and she was horrified because they married the women so young, often at 10, 11 years old, that they had never had menses. And she said, oh, uh, um, Miss Dowett, Miss Dowett in Amharic actually means mirror when you run it all together. So she was like, Miss Dowett, uh, I am a good girl. I have done nothing wrong, uh, but I am, I am bleeding down there. And I said, that's perfectly normal. So many of those kinds of things were difficult and challenging because families would marry girls, or the girls could be shamed for something like that. So I said, I will come and talk to your family about this. So I did that. But ultimately, I'm an American. Even though I drank the local beverage, you know, I, I knew the prostitutes who taught me how to spin cotton, um, I, all of those kinds of things. So I'm happy that I came home as American and I, I talk about it from time to time like this, but that's about it. I didn't have any challenges. Those are about the only challenges that every now and then, as a woman, I'd get pissed off. Well, thank you very much. Nalini, can you share with us uh, some difficulties that you faced and how you overcame them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Yeah, I don't know if I can, if I can top Karen. Um, <laughs> it was dangerous to do it. Yeah, it sounds like it. It was dangerous. It was got an umbrella. Um, um, but you know, one thing that I'm going to say, you know, I think, I, I think, I think a lot of things, I, I didn't realize for a long time that the only person in a lot of ways that's standing in my own way is myself. And, and some of the things, um, and yes, of course, of course, there's, this is, there's racism, there is um, sexism. I mean, a, a really small story. One time, one of my guys and I walked into a venture capitalist office and they, they ran to go get him, you know, coffee and stuff. And he turns around and he goes, she owns the company. Mm -hmm. And, 
and we walked out. Um, but, but you know, one of the things that I'm going to say is that what, what some of that stuff does, it makes me doubt myself. And that I think is, it's taken, it takes a long time to say, um, you know what, don't do that. Don't do that. You need to just really screen out people who are um, who don't believe in you. You need to judge your own work and judge what you're doing. Surround yourself with people who support you. Um, because I'm going to say too is is um, people have got, people have given me many many chances. Um, you know, because one, as I said, one, one thing I, I didn't talk about is my for-profit company. One, the thing I actually do to make money is I sell um, computer software products to Fortune 500 companies. And I'm telling you, with a small company, I mean, people all over the country, in, in the South, in New York City, everywhere, people have given me a chance. People have given me a chance, and they've judged my work. And, you know, this country, I'll tell you, there's a lot of doors that are open. It's you who are not able to go through them a lot of times. Not always, of course, a lot of times. Thank you very much. Lisa, would you be willing to share with us uh, some of the hurdles or obstacles you may have faced? Yeah, I can I can sort of build off what Nalini was saying. I think you know, coming back from the Peace Corps and saying, I'm going to start this business to import this superfood nobody's ever heard of from small African farmers, and then we're going to sell it in stores in the U.S. It was really, really hard to get any funding. Um, and, you know, coming out of Peace Corps, um, as your slide deck showed, I made, I think, $75 a month. So didn't have a, a ton of my own capital to put in it. Um, but you know, I ended up, I think, learning a lot out of that experience. I actually tracked all of the investors I talked to, and I got about 400 no's. I'm very proud of that spreadsheet, um, but it uh, made me really good at, at kind of refining my pitch and asking for what I needed, and I think it's you know, something I think a lot about now, if you just look at the stats of, of women and minority entrepreneurs, their access to capital is is so much more limited um, than what white men get. It's on the magnitude of less than 3% of businesses receiving venture capital funding are um, women or minority led. And so I, I think the sort of takeaway for me is like, what can I do to help bring other people up? And what can I help do to, to make introductions, to review pitch decks, to, to kind of support others? Um, to do what we did, which was raise about $10 million in, in venture capital investment. So um, that's kind of, I guess, one of the, the challenges and also one of the lessons. Rachla, would you be willing to share with us, please? Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by all the stories. Karen, you're a really great storyteller. I can see why you're in the field you're in. And Lisa, I really appreciate you sharing how much capital you've raised because the reality is in business, it takes money to make money. And, you know, in order to hit a lot of whatever business goals you want to achieve, it's, it, it's more than just having a great idea and a great product, which so many of us have. If you don't have access to capital, if you don't have access to 
a community of supporters and advisors who know what they're doing and who can guide you and lead you, it's an uphill battle. And the reality is eight out of 10 black owned businesses in this country close before 18 months. And so when we look at the issues surrounding being a black owned business, being a woman owned business, Nalini, to your point, yes, there are lots of, you know, doors open and yes, you know, you have to get over kind of the own limitations you put on yourself. But I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that there are systemic issues that have been around in our country for, you know, hundreds of years, as well as globally. And part of that is the huge inequality that exists. It's, it's enormous. And sometimes I look at the figure and I'm just blown away. You know, the average Black-owned business starts with less than $30,000 in their startup capital. I started with my $6,000 readjustment allowance, you know, and it took eight, almost eight years before I was able to get access to capital. And that is my story. It's my experience. Did it make me stop? Did it make me say, oh, I'm not going to do this? No, it made me work harder. But unfortunately, you know, Black-owned, minority-owned businesses, we have less to work with, less access to resources, yet we're expected to miraculously achieve all of these, you know, amazing, incredible things. And so I think for me, um, access to capital has been an issue. Access to the right advisors has been an issue. And, you know, to what you were saying earlier, Karen, around gender disparities, for me, I think more so than gender is some of the race disparities and the microaggressions I face as a Black woman. Um, the way people, uh, Nalini, when you were talking about someone thinking that your colleague, your male colleague was the owner of the company versus you, um, I will talk about a story when I was a Peace Corps volunteer and I was walking with a white volunteer and we were off to get... Um, groceries or we were going to the market and someone thought I was the white Peace Corps volunteers maid yeah. and treated me like I was their maid and said, oh, you know, your boss is so great. And, you know, and I think that if we want to be honest about some of the challenges and issues that we see in, in the range of communities across all these African countries, we cannot ignore um, racism. We cannot ignore neocolonialism. We cannot ignore that the reason why these the children in our villages that we served in are dealing with the issues that they're dealing with is related to hundreds of years of inequality, um, exploitation, um, and intentional systemic issues. And I think for me, as someone who grew up in a family where I was exposed to a lot of these inequality conversations, and in my family, we talked about stuff like this. Um, I was actually really surprised at the number of Peace Corps volunteers who weren't aware of some of the history of the, the communities that they were volunteering in. Um, and that was a, a, a really hard for me. And I guess I, I got the uh, reputation of being, you know, the Black woman who was all like Black power. And I'm like, but we're volunteering in a Black country. <laughs> we need to understand that these People in our communities are not just in their situations simply because there's a history behind it. Uh, and the history is ugly. It's not pretty. And I think um, the reason why I work so hard 
to build and grow Shayaline, despite all of these challenges and these realities, is because I want the people in my community to be able to see someone who looks like them and know that we as a as, as a group, as a diaspora, we can address our own issues and challenges and have our own solutions. I think that is so important. And so, you know, years from now, someone won't assume when a Black woman is walking with a white person, that Black woman is a maid. Um, and I think that it takes all of us, uh, you know, everyone here who's listening, uh, everyone here who's on this panel, to, to speak truth to power and call out when we see things that I think in the 21st century, we, we shouldn't be experiencing, honestly, whether it's gender issues or race issues. But with that, I also acknowledge my privilege, my privilege as an American. And because of that privilege, I've been able to, despite the challenges and the hardships, I've been able to push through and create this path that I truly, truly hope others will follow and even do bigger and better and greater things. Well, thank you. Uh, I have some questions from the audience. Uh, let's first start with, with Nalini. Um, with the perspective of your high-tech expertise, which countries or areas in Africa now have the strongest computer development usage, which are the weakest? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I don't know if you consider South Africa mm-hmm. a part of Africa or not. Clearly, South Africa, I mean, it's unfortunate, but South Africa is is um, doing, of course, very well. Kenya, Uganda, um, you know, a lot of countries um, are doing very, very well. Uh, there's there's a real resurgence in, in all these kind of things. In fact, a lot of people think in terms of tech, that is kind of going to be the next big sector. The problem, I will say, is... Um, uh, uh, well, uh, corruption, and that's what I see a lot. Is is um, unfortunately, you know, not every government is is um, uh, treats its people correctly. Um, I'm uh, as I said, there's there's Mauritius, unsurprisingly, Mauritius has a, a great group of internet technicians because these are the people that I know. But but there's some countries that have such potential, but they are actually cursed with having resources. I'll pick on Nigeria, a place like Nigeria with so much corruption. Um, and and I'm, we're seeing that right now with some of their stories when some of the internet agencies in Africa having lots of trouble because there's so much money involved. Um, but you know, I want to react real quickly to, to Rama. I, I'm just so blown away by everything that, that you're saying, because really, we're all talking from our perspective. I'm talking from the perspective of an Indian woman in high tech. It's a very, very different perspective. And, and I'll tell you what the Black community has had to deal with and what poor Africa has had to deal with is so different. Even India, you know, our our experience was different i mean you know i bring that story is like in india we were we were we shamed the british had a sense of shame you know passive resistance worked but in south africa you can passive resistance all you want they'll kill you and and so it's a very different experience and um 
so anyway, anyway, I, I say we can talk for for forever on all these topics. Yeah. Can I just respond to that really quickly? Because I, I, I agree with what you're saying too. And if you notice, I didn't realize this. So I, I've traveled to 21 countries on the continent. And when I went to East Africa uh, and parts of Southern Africa, seeing that a lot of colonial um, powers, what they did historically, bringing in the Lebanese, bringing in the Indians, and then putting them in places of authority over African populations, those things have not changed. It's still like that. So when you go into a lot of African countries, the people who are the business owners, who own the property, who own the land, are not Africans themselves. And so I think that, you know, when we talk about these issues, I don't know about other places where Peace Corps volunteers have volunteered, but on the continent of Africa, we have to be really aware of the history and why a lot of the issues and systemic issues we see, these have been put in place for hundreds of years. And so for me, I, I, it's important that we talk about these things because sometimes the way we talk about the continent and the way we talk about countries, we miss that. And it's really important that we acknowledge that a lot of these issues that Black, Black Africans are dealing with in their countries have been around, even the corruption issue that you're talking about, has been around, it's systemic, and it's intentional. Okay, Karen, I have a question for you from the audience. Do you have any insights on the political strife uh, currently happening in Ethiopia? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, uh First off, you have to have some context for all of this kind of stuff. And uh, I appreciate both of the women who talked about Africa, both the corruption, and there are 54 different countries in Africa. I have to get my students to stop saying uh, it happened in Italy, it happened in France, and it happened in Africa. I'm like, which one of the 54 countries are you talking about? They're all different. People are different, different languages. In Ethiopia... When I was there, I was there when the emperor was still alive. So I am very, very old. <laughs> and we called him his imperial majesty. You better not say Haile Selassie. You have to say imperial majesty. But after he was gone, you had uh, a communist government, which actually worked in many ways to educate a lot of people, including the black Ethiopians, the new era, the Anuaks who are down south and connected more, uh, as well as the highland people. So he did manage to do some good things, but then corruption, he made a lot of money and he's out of there. Then the last administration before the present one was uh, dominated, uh, they got rid of Mengistu by a tribe that is the smallest tribe in Ethiopia of the dominant ones, the Tigres. Um, they dominated everything and they put a big emphasis on different ethnicities. So I think there are now six different uh, areas in Ethiopia, and um, the emphasis was, I mean, it was a divide and conquer. Let me every, have everybody um, functioning on their own tribe, and I can run it. Then we got the new one, and it was going to be all of Ethiopia, once again united, but a small faction of Tigres said, hey, it was like the South. They said, hey, we're going to go independent, and you had that big problem in uh, the uh, northeastern part of Ethiopia. I'm on the um, Ethiopian, Era, uh, the, the Eritrean Ethiopian um, 
Peace, Return Peace Corps Volunteer Board. And so we have been supporting uh, efforts for like the Doctors uh, Without Borders to take care of people because the reaction, and it's not so much Ethiopia as it actually is often Eritrean soldiers, has been phenomenally violent. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, I don't know. But once again, it's one of those situations where I often don't like American news media, we're doing, going through it in Afghanistan right now, where people are making, don't know the culture, and they're making short-term thinking analysis of what's going to come there. I've talked to some Ethiopian friends because I said I would like to retire maybe to Ethiopia because I speak the language, I like the culture. I also like cold weather and the Northern part is cold. Uh, and I said, well, now that you got a war, I can't do that. And they were like, no, I think it's gonna be okay. So we have to see. American news, and I, I'm noticing this more and more, everything is all, always, will it work? Uh, can Biden survive? Uh, will the infrastructure piece uh, pass? Well, everything takes time. I mean, it was also like the vaccine. I belong to a women's book club, a black women's book club. People were like, when are we gonna get the vaccine? When are we gonna get the vaccine? I said, well, we got just got a new president. So it's gonna take a little time. And I don't see very much, uh, uh, because of the internet, people are used to having things happen instantly. And that's not the way life is. I mean, you've started your companies. It took time to do that. But if I was focusing on you in a magazine, people would read the piece and they would say, oh, look what these women have done. They're, they're famous. They won't talk about the hard work that you went through for years. I remember uh, interviewing Morgan Freeman for the New York Times. I actually danced with Morgan Freeman. I danced with God, since that's who he's known in the movies. Uh, and I danced with God when he was 38 years old. And he was not famous. He was not God. He had just made the second front of the New York Times as an up and coming actor, up and coming. So I think a lot of times, and particularly with my students, I have to say, OK, make a plan for your life, but also realize there's going to be ups and downs and it's not going to be straight up. Because Americans often think, particularly because there's so much focus on people who've made it, they don't talk about the decades the rejections, they talk about, oh, this is a billionaire. Look at Jay-Z, look at Beyonce, look at Rahama, Rahma, and look at Lisa, look at Nalini. Not how long did it take them to do this and how hard it is. So I hope I answered that question about Ethiopia. I mean, it's going to take some time. And Ethiopia, unlike many African countries, has been mostly independent. I mean, they beat the Italians, uh, but as, as a matter of fact, one of my, <laughs> when we were in the Peace Corps, we used to go to Kenya for vacation and beaches and things like that. And I remember when we came back, one of my fellow Peace Corps volunteers said, I asked him if he liked Kenya. He said, no, I actually like living in the 17th century because the people really are genuine. They haven't been influenced by colonialism. He said, so yeah, Ethiopia is the 17th century, but it's real. Well, thank you. Um, Lisa, can you tell us a little bit of how climate change is affecting uh, moringa and the whole process of making the food? Yeah, um, it's I mean, affecting the whole world. I can see smoke outside of my window today in the Bay Area. Um, 
So I, I think in terms of Moringa, you know, it's just actually on a, a call this morning with one of our farmer partners in Uganda, and they are anxiously awaiting the rains, which have not come yet. Um, and we are hearing that more and more that, you know, people are are waiting, waiting for the rains to come so they can harvest their Moringa and it, they're coming later and later. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something you're, you're seeing all over the world. I think from our business and, and what we're trying to do, we think a lot about like, how can we be carbon negative and how can we do everything possible to have a, a positive impact on the planet? And just kind of really quick anecdote on that is we did a, a carbon audit about a year ago and I thought the, the biggest source of carbon was gonna be you know, transporting containers of Moringa from Uganda to California. Um, actually ended up, it was our packaging. Um, so just yesterday we announced our new packaging change where we're using post-consumer recycled plastic in 80% of our products, um, which is taking the equivalent of like 40,000 water bottles uh, off, off the system every year. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a really big problem. And I think especially in places that are already hot and dry, they're just getting hotter and drier. And so we're, you know, doing everything we can to figure out how to support our, our farmer partners through that. Uh, Rachma, can you add insight to climate change and Shea Butter? Yeah, no, uh, Lisa, that, that's really awesome. And I'll have to follow up with you to learn more on the packaging side. Um, so the, it takes the shade tree about 25 years to mature. And so unlike moringa, you can't plant it. And then, you know, you have a harvest in a few months. It takes quite a bit of time. Um, and because of when, when you take the shade tree and you make it uh, financially viable for the local communities that actually prevents the tree from being cut down for firewood and or charcoal. And so for us with Shailene, what we've been doing is by helping these women generate an income from this natural resource, it's actually protecting the tree. Um, some of the things that we're doing in terms of looking at how to use all of the, the, the waste and the byproduct from the shea we're doing some research on how, after the women have made a batch of shea, can they use the waste um, to make biofuel? And so, again, reducing the amount of charcoal that's being used, as well as firewood that's being used in the process. Um, that's part of what we're doing to kind of support, you know, protecting not only the tree, but also taking all the steps that we can to use the waste so they make money from the production of the shea and they can also make money from the waste from the shea. We have time for one, one last question. Uh, Nalini, can you please give us some insights on how the internet is going to be improving social equity and social equality? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, that, that was the dream. That was the dream. A lot of people got involved, you know, and we, I mean, I, I kind of joke around. It's like, we thought it was going to, you know, democratizing the world, you know, unleash creativity. And what it's led to is, is cat videos and, and, um, and, and worse, you know, I, and, you know, cause, cause that, this is actually one of the battles that I fight in my actual life is, um, which is that, the internet, as in every human 
invention has good and bad aspects. And it has also fueled uh, terrorism, hate speech, public shaming. It, but don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It has been an incredible force for democratization of knowledge. I mean, my phone, with my phone or with, you know, you can go to a, a more libraries than, than Aristotle could have dreamed of. So, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It has been a force for social um, equality and, and um, you know, an uplift. Having said that, <laughs> um, more nuance, right? I mean, if you look at the digital divide and the huge divide that a lot of minority communities are falling through, it's not, it's a chasm. It's the, it's the digital Grand Canyon. And, and in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like, you know, as far, I mean, those of us who are in the tech world, I mean, you know, frankly, it's kind of like, what's wrong? Everything's wonderful. You know, I mean, I, I, all I do is I talk to other tech people who are also doing great, you know, and but, but that, that, that's just getting to be a smaller and smaller percentage of people, a slice all over the world who is doing just fine and the rest of the world is not. And so, so a lot of times, you know, I do wonder, I mean, was the internet, was that, was that actually right? Or was that good? I guess I'm going to say, I, I mean, it's too late now, of course, but, but, but I think we need to really focus on seeing the reality that, that it has led to not just democratization, but also a lot of the, 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 the unintended consequences. Well, thank you very much, all of you. Thank you, panel members, for sharing with us some of the inspiring, important, and impactful work that you do. Um, we're, I'd like to, uh, unfortunately, have to close, but I want to give our special thanks to Rachma, Lisa, Karen, and Nalini. And we also thank our audiences for joining us today and watching the recording. And now... This meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 118th year of enlightenment discussion is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.